1,900 years ago, our Lord was born to the Virgin Mary. When he was a baby, it was necessary for Joseph and Mary to take him and flee into the land of Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod the Great. After Herod died, Joseph and Mary returned to Palestine, but instead of settling in Judea where Archelaus, the brutal son of Herod, ruled, they went to Nazareth. When our Lord was twelve, they took him to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast, and on that occasion he astounded some of the wisest men in all of Israel with his wisdom and understanding. From the time he was twelve until he was thirty is generally described by the scholars as the silent years. At the age of thirty, he went to the River Jordan to receive baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. You remember on that occasion, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led or driven of the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted for forty days. Following the temptations, he selected the twelve men who were going to do the great work of the Lord after he returned to heaven. Eventually, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, betrayed him, and Jesus, of course, died on the cross. He was buried in the rich man's tomb, but on the first day of the week he was raised. And in that act, he was declared to be God's Son with power. Furthermore, he planted the rose of immortality upon the bosom of every grave. He sojourned with his disciples for forty days, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. And then one day he took them out to the Mount of Olives and charged them with a great commission. He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and he is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I think, frankly, the great commission is very simple. The Lord said, Tell the story of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, Those who believe it and are baptized will be saved, but those who disbelieve will be damned. And then Jesus began his ascension. The disciples, of course, watched him as he went up, but he was shortly caught out of their sight in a cloud. And they went back to Jerusalem and remained there for ten days. And on the Pentecost day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church of God was established. One day Jesus will come again. I think everyone in the room tonight believes what I've just related. But thus far in life, a few have acted as though it were not true because you've done nothing about your soul. Or if you have responded to the gospel initially, you've gone back into the world. We've heard over and over again that haste makes waste. In some instances, that may be true. But insofar as obedience to our Lord is concerned, haste does not make waste but rather it is a mark of wisdom. David said, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. And tonight, if you're unprepared to meet your Lord, you need to make haste and delay not to keep God's commandments. This evening, as time permits, I want to point out five reasons why it is foolishness for you to wait in doing the Lord's will. Why really it's a mark of folly for you to delay in obeying Jesus. Reason number one is that delay is an expression of unbelief. Now, it may not sound that way at first, but I think if you'll listen for just a minute, you'll see that delay is an expression of one's unbelief. Suppose that a half dozen competent physicians should diagnose your illness as cancer and recommend immediate surgery. What would be your reaction? Well, of course, that would depend on whether or not you believe them. If you said, now, fellas, I'm going to think about this three or four years and then maybe I'll undergo the surgery, that would be a pretty good indication you did not believe their diagnosis. No one likes to go under the doctor's knife, I don't think. But if one felt that he had to do it to, to live, if he really believed it were necessary, then, of course, he would have the surgery. Suppose that someone awakens you at 3.30 in the morning and says, Get out of this place. The house is on fire. What will be your response? Again, it depends on whether or not you believe what the person has said. 
If you don't believe him, you'll roll over and open one eye and say, Hey, man, get out of here and leave me alone. I'm trying to rest. But if you believe him, you'll come out of that bed post-haste. And if you can't find a window or a door, you'll likely make one. So it really depends on whether or not you believe as to the action you will take. Have you ever wondered why some people who are financially able to do so refuse to buy insurance? Well, it's a matter of unbelief. They don't believe they're going to have a burnout or a wreck or experience an untimely death. Now, don't misunderstand me. One who buys insurance is not necessarily saying these things will happen to him, but he's saying that he believes in the possibility of such happening to him. People do not buy insurance primarily because of unbelief. It simply could not happen to me. This evening at 10 o'clock, Brother Jim Woodruff is going to stand on top of this church building and throw away $20,000 in $5 bills. Now, where will you be at 945? It depends on whether or not you believe my statement. If you really believe what I've said about it, likely you will not leave these premises unless it's to go home and get a sack. But nevertheless, our action is based upon whether or not we believe what we have heard. On a fateful night in 1741, the Russian throne was vacated because of death. Elizabeth was to ascend that throne and become empress of all the Russians. However, she was hesitant. Her friend Count Lessig went to the palace and pleaded with her to become the empress that night, but still she was hesitant. As a last resort, he painted a picture of Elizabeth and himself hanging by their necks from the gallows. And he said, if you don't accept the responsibility for ruling Russia tonight, tomorrow our political enemies will hang us. She waited no longer. She believed what he said, therefore she ascended the throne, and that very night she became empress of all the Russians. The Israelite people were in Egyptian captivity, and they cried to God for deliverance. He raised up Moses and Aaron. He performed the ten plagues through these two men, the last of which was the death of the firstborn son. And so the Hebrew nation began to move toward the border of Egypt. God caused the wind to blow from the east. He opened up a path for them in the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. They went through on dry ground, came up on the other side. The Egyptian host attempting to do the same thing had the flood or had the waters to rush round about them, and every last one of them died. Yes, God delivered them from Egyptian bondage, and then He provided for them during the three-month trek down to Mount Sinai. He caused the manna to rain down from heaven upon them daily. At Sinai, He supernaturally revealed Himself to the people. He gave the Ten Commandments. Two years after they left Egypt, they arrived at Kadesh Barnea on the southern extremity of the land of Canaan. Moses sent out twelve spies to reconnoiter the land. After forty days they returned. Ten of the spies said, While their cities are walled up to heaven, and their people are so big we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Joshua and Caleb said, However, with the Lord's help we can go in and conquer. But the people accepted the majority report, and they would not move. At Hebrews 3:18 and 19 it is stated, They could not go in because of unbelief. They didn't move because they really did not believe that God would give them the victory. This evening, if you're not a Christian, or if you are one who has in times past been faithful to Christ, but you have returned to sin, you don't really believe. You don't believe in a biblical sense until you move to get your life right with Christ. At John 12, 42, 43, it is written, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be cast out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. 
Now they believed in Jesus intellectually. They had a belief of the head but not of the heart. It is true that a man must exercise faith, but faith must exercise the man before it is availing. They believed intellectually. They gave mental assent to the fact that he was the Christ, but they would not confess him. Therefore, they did not really believe to the saving of their souls because they did not move. They did not obey. You may have heard the story about the fellow who stretched the tight wire across Niagara Falls and then rolled a wheelbarrow across the wire and over the falls. The people who saw what he had done gave him a round of applause. And he turned to them and said, How many of you think I could put a man in that wheelbarrow and roll him across? Hands went up all over the place. He said, All right, one of you jump in and let's go. He didn't get a taker. I mean, not a one. Oh, they believed he could do it. But not a one was willing to trust himself into the care of the man. Not a one would commit himself to that kind of danger. We may say that we believe, but until we reach the point that we will commit ourselves to the care of Jesus Christ, we do not believe to the saving of our souls. Delay is an expression of unbelief. If you're lost tonight and know it, unless you move, you don't really believe you're a sinner. You don't really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You don't really believe there's going to be a judgment. You don't really believe that time and timely things will one day come to an end. You don't really believe that there is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained. You may believe it intellectually, but you don't believe it to the saving of your soul until you move. Delay is an indication of unbelief. But secondly, delay is tempting to God. Now don't misunderstand me. We cannot tempt God to sin. James said, Man is, does not tempt God, and God does not tempt man. We cannot tempt God to sin, but there is a sense in which we can tempt God. You remember in Matthew chapter 4 that Satan took Jesus to the uh, pinnacle of the temple and he said, Now, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written that he will give his angels charge concerning thee, and they will bear thee up on their hands, lest at any time thou shouldst dash thy foot against a stone. Now Satan is saying, in essence, prove to me you're the Son of God. Just jump off now and just float down, parachute-like. Man, I know the Lord surely wanted to do it. He had the capacity, he had the ability to do it. He wanted to prove to Satan that he was really the Son of God, but he also saw in that a temptation to sin. And he responded by saying, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now what did he mean by that? He meant for me to place myself foolishly in danger would be to make trial of God, to put God to the test, would be to tempt God to let me die. And he said, I don't intend to engage in that kind of activity. Suppose that a fellow today were to say to you, I'm going to show you how much I trust the Lord by stepping off this 5,000-foot cliff. And about halfway down, he says, Lord, save me. You know what's going to happen to him? He'll become minced man in the valley below now, he is not showing us how much he trusts the Lord and how much he depends on the Lord by exposing himself foolishly to danger. Suppose that a fellow were to say, now, I'm going to dive into the pool, tie myself on the bottom, and live there for the next two or three hours without any artificial breathing device to show you how much I trust the Lord. Well, you can come back in about 15 minutes and cut loose a corpse. He's going to die, and he's not showing you how much he depends upon the Lord or trusts in the Lord by foolishly exposing himself to danger. Suppose that an individual were to say, I'm going to take you for a ride, and we're going to drive 110 miles an hour on the interstate, and I'm going to prove to you that God will take care of me under these circumstances. Oh, no. 
He's not showing you how much confidence he has in the Lord. He is foolishly exposing himself to danger, and he's tempting God to let him die, driving at 110 miles an hour, if not to die, at least to be badly, badly injured. I had an uncle and aunt who had an inordinate fear of storms. One night, a little storm cloud grew up in the rural community where they lived, and true to their nature, they both went to the storm cellar. The next day, my uncle and another man were driving to work, and the man said, Mac, did you go to the storm cellar last night? He said, yes. And the man said, why, don't you know whenever it's your time to die, you're going to die regardless? You've heard that, haven't you? I've heard that all my life. Now, here's what that meant. It meant that had it been his time to die the night before and had a tornado struck the community, it would have gone down into the storm cellar after him. But on the other hand, had it not been his time to die and had the tornado struck the community the night before, he could have stood in its vortex and he wouldn't have been hurt. That's what that means. Well, a few days later, these same two fellows were driving to work. Came to the railroad. Man stopped the car because there was a train coming. After the train went by, my uncle said, Why'd you stop? He said, Well, didn't you see that train? And my uncle said, Well, whenever it's your time to die, you're going to die regardless. And the point was, had it not been their time to die, they could have parked on the tracks in front of the oncoming train. Neither one of them had been hurt. On the other hand, had it been their time to die, they could have parked 500 yards away. The train would have left the track, gone down the road, and hit and killed them both. Now, that's where that kind of reasoning leads you. Now, that's a pack of foolishness. That's just nonsense. Any time you foolishly expose yourself to danger, you're tempting the Lord to let you get hurt. You're putting God to the test. You're putting Him to the trial. Now tonight, if you're not saved and know it, here's what you're saying to God. God, you wouldn't let me die in sin. God, you wouldn't let me leave this world without a Savior. God, you wouldn't let me come up before you in judgment without having made sufficient preparation. God, you wouldn't cast me into hellfire alive. And you're tempting God to allow all of these horrible things to occur to you. Every last one of them. You tempt God by delay. But there's another way we can tempt God, and that's in the sense of trying His patience. In Numbers 14, 22, God said of Israel, They have tempted me these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. David, referring to that same thing in Psalm 78, wrote, Yet they have tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies. God can be tempted in the sense of trying His patience. There is no true analogy for God. The nearest thing to a true analogy is a good father. And so whatever analogy I use, of course, is going to be short of what it ought to be. Marilyn and I have three children, and we think they're precious and, you know, almost perfect. But once in a while, I see a little bit of orneriness, you know, creep out of one of them. Naturally, it's from the other side of the family. But anyhow, I see that once in a while. And, and so I'll say, uh, honey, don't do that. Hey, don't do that. Hey, you. Yeah, the one who wears the hair. I'm talking to you. Yeah, the one has got the ears. You. Don't do that. Well, the first thing, you know, I'll have to walk over there and apply a little palm oil to the seed of his learning before he begins to get the drift of my thinking. Now, what is he doing? Among other things, he's trying that his patience. Now, he's doing that. All right. Now, even though the analogy is not a good one, I maintain that the patience of God can come to an end after a while. 2 Peter 3.15 says that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, 
But His long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And just six verses later it is written that we can account the long-suffering of God for our salvation. I believe that God is patient, but even the patience of God after a while is worn thin and it comes to an end. To illustrate, shortly after David became king of Judah, he sent word that the ark was to be moved from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. That ark was moved by Hiel and Uzzah, the two sons of Abinadab. They had it on a new cart. And as they were making their journey up to Jerusalem, one of the oxen stumbled. The ark tilted and looked as though it were going to fall. Uzzah stretched forth his hand to stay it. And when he touched the ark, God smote him and killed him. And that place was called Perez Uzzah because there is where the wrath of God broke forth against Uzzah. David had a little trouble understanding that. I think it's one of the most beautiful examples in all of the Bible of the patience and the long-suffering of God. God had specified that when that ark was to be, when that ark was moved, that it was to be wrapped by the high priest and his sons. God had specified when the ark was moved, it was to be carried by Levites. God had indicated that whoever touched it, other than the high priest and his sons, would die. Those boys, number one, have had hands on that ark. Number two, neither one of them are Levites. Number three, the ark is not being carried on the shoulders of men. It's being carried on a new cart. Number four, that ark had not been prepared for removal by the high priest and his sons. God had allowed them to go so far. And finally, when Uzzah stretched out that profane hand and touched the ark, God said, that's it, son. I've gone as far as I will go. Really, when you look at the story from the viewpoint of all that the Lord had said about the Ark of the Covenant, it beautifully illustrates how patient he was in allowing these boys to go as far as they did. But finally, he stopped it. One of them died. And I tell you, the next time David moved that Ark, he did it right. He did it right the next time. He didn't violate the Word of the Lord. I had a funeral many years ago for an 18-month-old baby. It was an especially difficult funeral for me because my daughter at that time was about the same age. That child was born out of wedlock. Its mother was a woman of loose morals. Its grandmother was a prostitute. And its father was a drunkard. The father didn't show up for the funeral service, but nevertheless we went on to the cemetery to bury the body of that little child, and Dad walked up. I mean, he couldn't walk a straight line. He was so drunk, he didn't know which way he was up. And I thought, that ornery rascal wouldn't even show up for the funeral of his own baby, sober. He was in his mid-forties. A short time after that, he became a little ill one afternoon, and they took him to the hospital. And uh, it's a little bit difficult to explain from what I've heard, but he hadn't been there long until he strangled. I mean, just up and died. Now, what I'm about to tell you is my opinion. I couldn't prove this in my life opinion. It's simply a matter of opinion. But I have a sneaking suspicion that God said, in essence, you rascal, you've gone just as far as you're going. I've put up with you, and I've put up with you, and I've put up with you, and now it's all over. And I have a sneaking suspicion that's what happened. The patience of the Lord wore thin, and finally the man died unsaved and was taken into the next world without any hope at all. Yes, delay is tempting to God in the sense of putting Him to the test and in the sense of trying His patience. But delay is disobedience as well. It's not too well known, but it's true nevertheless, 
that the very next day after Israel had refused to go into Canaan, they were just as determined to go in. Moses said, it's too late. The Lord has withdrawn from you. He said, furthermore, I'm not going to allow you to take the Ark of the Covenant with you, and I'm not going myself. But they were just as bullheaded about going in that day as they had been about not going in the day before. So they set out. And they had a run-in with the Canaanites at Hormah. That means destruction. And they were destroyed. They experienced signal defeat at the hands of their enemies. You see, they delayed, and their delay was disobedience. Isaiah said, we'd better seek the Lord while he may be found. According to Matthew 19, Jesus was walking along the road one day, and a rich young ruler saw him, ran to him, fell down before him. He said, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may enter into life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, well, which ones? The Lord said, Well, thou shalt do no murder, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy, honor thy father and thy mother. Love thy neighbors thyself. Keep these commandments. And he said, Well, these I've kept my youth up. What like I yet? And then the Lord went to the core of his problem. He said, Well, if you'd be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast. Give to the poor. Come follow me. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. In other words, you're allowing money to stand between you and your God. And the Bible says, The boy went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let's suppose that six months later, he obeyed the Lord. Six months later, he decides to do what Christ has told him to do. But he had known for six long months what he was to do. That means every day during that six-month period, he lived in studied, rebellious defiance to the will of God. If you decide to get right with God two years from now, every day between now and then, will be a day of rebellion. It'll be a day of disobedience. It'll be a day of defiance against Almighty God, the one who made you, and the one who seeks to redeem you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Delay is disobedience. According to Matthew 8, one of the disciples of Christ went to him and he said, Lord, suffer me first to bury my father. Now, frankly, I think that boy's daddy was still living. But he was saying, in essence, my daddy is aged, he's in poor health, he can't last much longer, and I want to care for him and give him a decent burial, and then I'll follow you. Jesus replied, follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. You follow me. Well, isn't it important that a boy care for his aged father? Yes. Isn't it important that he give him a decent burial? Yes. Well, what's the point? The point is the boy was trying to put his daddy ahead of Jesus. And Christ said, you can't even use your father as an excuse for not following me. And on another occasion, the Lord said, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he, he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The other night, in counseling with a young man, I had occasion to ask him to read that very passage. He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But the point is this. If Jesus wouldn't let that boy put his daddy ahead of him, Whatever excuse you and I offer to justify ourselves in not obeying Him will not work. You say, well, I've got a lot of problems, or the Christian life is too hard, or, or I'm too old, or I'm going too late, or I'm not good enough, or I am good enough. And while you're making excuses, remember this. I beg you to remember it. Every day you make an excuse. You're disobeying God. You're disobeying the Lord who loves you and who gave His Son to die for you. Yes, delay is disobedience. But fourthly, delay is a stumbling block to other people. In 1951, a group of us students from Harding went to Camp Dakota on an outing. There was a high school group there from Newark the same day. 
And if you've been to Camp Dakota, you know there is the Salado Creek that runs across that property. Really, it's a small river. About mid-afternoon, a 16-year-old girl was swinging on a rope out over that creek, and she lost her grip and fell into the water. There must have been a hundred of us standing and sitting on the bank, and she was splashing and yelling, and frankly, we all thought she was clowning, just having a big time. But her little friend was standing next to me, and she said, she can't swim. Well, I'm no hero, but the next thing I knew, I was in the water with her. And I don't know how to save anybody's life who's drowning, and so I just went in real close, you know, to get a hold of her. And, boy, she reached out and took no telling how much hide off of one arm, and I backed up a little. Then I reached back in, grabbed hold of a wrist, and would swim a couple of strokes, you know, with this hand, and then pull, and swim a couple of strokes, and pull. And it wasn't more than 15 or 20 feet to the bank. Somebody reached down, got hold of her, and lifted her out, and it wasn't long until she's all right. Now, suppose I'd waited. You know that girl almost died right there in front of a hundred people? We didn't really know she was in danger. Her living depended on someone's moving this. Had I delayed, she would have died. I saw a TV movie years ago about marine action in the Southwest Pacific during the Second World War. There were five or six fellows out in an advanced position. They ran low on ammo, so one was designated to go to the rear to get some more ammunition. He went back, picked up the ammo, started back toward the advanced position. He ran in some fellows that had some hot coffee, and he hadn't, anything, hadn't had anything warm to drink for several days, so he decided to drink some coffee with them. Well, a few minutes had dawned on him. His buddies were depending on him. So he left, went back to that position, but it was too late. It had been overrun by the Japanese, and every man in the group was killed but one, as I recall. His delay cost those fellows their lives. Now that has spiritual application as well. I was in a meeting at Bradford, just a few miles north of here, and one Sunday afternoon a brother and I were out doing some visiting in the community trying to talk some people into doing the Lord's will. We called on a man who was a, a serious uh, heart patient at that time. Pleaded with him to do the Lord's will. He wouldn't listen to us. Incidentally, he died nine months later without a Savior. But while we were talking to him, he said, uh, Have you fellas talked to Mrs. McKnight? I said, What? You mean she's not a Christian? He said, No. I said, You know, she lives right down here. Why, she'd been at all of the services, but we're talking about a woman who was 91 years old. And I just knew she was a veritable bulwark in that congregation, had been a pillar in the church across the years. He said, No, she's not even a Christian. So we went on down to see her. Bless her heart, she didn't been waiting on somebody to ask her. She already had a, an extra dress rolled up in a bundle so she could be baptized in it. Well, we talked to her about five or ten minutes, went to the church building and baptized her. But I'll tell you, I baptized her with mingled emotions. I surely was happy that finally she was doing the Lord's will. She should have been a Christian, however, 78 years sooner. Her husband was already gone. And he never had heard the gospel from her. All of her friends that had grown up with her were gone. They'd never heard her speak a good word for Jesus. How many scores of people left this world without any hope? Because she waited until she was 91 to do the will of Christ. Suppose she had turned to Christ when she was 13. How many others would have been influenced so that they would have gone to heaven? But by waiting so long, so many others were lost as well. In an eastern Arkansas meeting, the brethren put me in the home of a middle-aged couple. One night after services, we came in, sat in the front room, we're talking, and I almost wept. There's a man and his wife now, about 46, 45 years of age, and they said, Jim, you know, we haven't been Christians long. We 
They brought four children into the world, and they're all married now. And do you know we can't get a, one of them to listen to us about Jesus? Not a one of them will listen. Well, that man and woman should have been Christians when they were 12, 13, or 14 years of age. They should have been Christians the day they married. They should have brought their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But they didn't. And now here they've waited until their 40s before they become Christians. And they can't reach their kiddos. I think one of the awful realizations of hell for some will be, not only are they there, but their children, whom they influenced to follow them every step of the way, are there with them. Isn't that terrible? They obeyed the gospel. They were saved. And that good woman has now gone on to be with her Lord. But as far as I know, the children never were reached. In another Eastern Arkansas meeting, we had talked to a man and his wife about doing the Lord's will. And back in those days, you had to hold a ten-day meeting, you know, to be scriptural. So we'd already gone through nine nights, and neither of them had responded. And so we came down to the last night, and, and I preached my sermon, and we sang the invitation song, and I looked at him, and neither one of them moved and we finished singing so I came back up to the platform for some more exhortation we started singing again and finally the man stepped out into the aisle came down to the front took a seat we're still singing his wife came took a seat still singing and his father came took a seat I know it's a matter of absolute fact that two people in the kingdom of God tonight who wouldn't be there had not that first one moved now, I know they had more motivation and incentive than the fact that he moved, but the fact that he moved gave them enough of a push so they had moved. If that man hadn't come, his wife wouldn't have come. If that man hadn't come, his father wouldn't have come. But he moved, and because he moved, they moved. Now, suppose he hadn't. Then his delay would have been a stumbling block to two other people. I was preaching one night in Truman, Arkansas. That was an eight-day meeting. We'd already gone through seven nights, and frankly, hadn't had much of a meeting. And so we were about finished with the invitation song and had a pretty good crowd, but it just looked like no one was going to respond. And finally, at the very back, a dentist stepped out into the aisle and walked to the front. I believe he has a son here now. He walked to the front. And after he came, you would have thought that a log jam had broken because 15 or 20 other people came. He had an influence in the community. He came to do the Lord's will, and others saw their need, and they moved. If he hadn't moved, I don't think they would. I really don't. Delay. Sometimes it's a stumbling block to others. You say, well, why? Because we all have influence. Paul said in Romans 14 that no man lives unto himself. Now, you need to come primarily because you're lost, if you are. But your coming may give the necessary incentive and motivation for someone else to do exactly the same thing. I don't know how long Jim Woodruff has been a Christian, but I would imagine in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 years. Suppose that Jim were not a Christian now. Let's suppose he's still living in sin. How many hundreds of people would be traveling that broad road that leads to everlasting destruction and ruin if Jim were still in sin? Suppose he just delayed. He answers the invitation tonight and we baptize him, but he had delayed all this period of time. You see how many other people would not be saved because he waited so long? Delay is a stumbling block. But finally, delay is failure. Sometimes delay proves to be failure. I can't remember how long ago this was. I'd say 15 to 20 years. There was a Harding boy fishing on Little Red River with two non-Christian men. And he taught these two men the gospel. He baptized one of them then. The 16-year-old on the boat said, Well, I'll be baptized Sunday. For some reason or other, the Harding boy left those two and came back into town. And then he went back later in the day to join the two of them. And they had turned over the boat. 
16-year-old had drowned and they were dragging the river for his body. The day he was taught the gospel, the day he was convicted of his sins, the day he made the promise that he was going to do the Lord's will was the last day he ever lived. Delay was certainly failure for him. In a rural Alabama community, there lived a lovely elderly Christian woman whose husband was not a Christian. But he attended church services more faithfully than some of the members. And every preacher who moved to work with that little congregation took that man as a personal prospect, and every one of them heard the same thing. Well, I'm not quite ready. And one day he was out working on the tractor, and that thing bucked up, fell back over on him, and crushed him. Two young men from the community nearby sped out to pick him up, put him in the ambulance, drive him back to town. They had to go right past that little church building where he had worshipped on so many occasions, and he knew that the preacher was there studying at that time of day, and he begged those two boys to stop and let him get out so he could go in and be baptized. Well, they weren't trying to save his soul. They were trying to save his life. So they sped right on by, went to the hospital, rolled him down the corridor, and the last words he ever said was that he wanted to be a Christian. I've told that story many a time in a meeting. And I've had people to walk out after services over and say, Boy, I'll tell you one thing. Do you think he's better off because he, he went to church and, and he was interested in... I say, man, no, no! Well, he'd been a thousand times better off if he'd been a savage in Africa or an aborigine in Australia who'd never heard the truth than to have heard about Jesus and Him crucified and what to do to be saved and do nothing about it. Oh, sir, he would have been better to have lived and died in abject ignorance than to have died in that kind of condition. There was a fellow who owned an owl, and he said his owl could whip anything that had feathers on it. He ran into a fellow one day who owned a rooster, and he said, My bird whip anything that has feathers on it. So they put the owl and the rooster in a pit to fight. The rooster circled that owl. Boy, he went in high with those spurs up, and he cut him. The blood just gushed, and the owl blinked one eye. The fellow that owned the rooster said, What's wrong with the owl? What's the matter with it? Why don't, we, why don't we fight? He said, Oh, don't worry about it. He said, He's just thinking. That rooster circled him again, you know. Boy went in with those spurs high and he cut him on the other side and the blood just ran. Al blinked the other eye. What's wrong, yeah? Come on, what, what's wrong? He said, Oh, don't worry, said he's just thinking. So he circled him again. Boy, this time he went in with those spurs high and he just flogged him to death. And you weren't expecting this. But the moral of the story is he died thinking. And he died thinking. How many people have I known who died thinking about doing the Lord's will and never did get it done? And when we meet Jesus in the after a while, the question is not going to be, did you intend to obey the gospel? The question will be, did you obey the gospel? The time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin with us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. What's going to be the end of those that don't obey the gospel? Paul said, Do you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? When you turn to your New Testament, you will find urgency upon almost every page. It's not wait, but it's do it now. 16th chapter of the Acts, we read of the conversion of the jailer. He was taught late one evening. The Bible says he's baptized the same hour of the night. Turn to the second chapter of the Acts on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. Those people were taught the gospel and listened to the conclusion. 
Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Turn to the study of the conversion, uh, the study of the Ethiopians' conversion in Acts chapter 8. Philip taught him. The same day he stopped that chariot, went down into the water, and was baptized. He couldn't wait until the next day. Over and over and over again. Immediately when they heard the truth, they acted right then. Now there is one exception. Saul of Tarsus. Saul had that confrontation with Jesus and he asked what to do and the Lord said, you go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. Three days later, Ananias came in, found him down in prayer. He said, and now why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He had to wait three days. Why? Not because he wanted to wait, but because God said, in essence, you have mistreated the church, you've persecuted my people, and I'm going to let you stew in your own juice for a while. And he let him suffer for a while. And then Ananias came in and he said, Well, why do you tarry? Why do you wait any longer? Why don't you arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord? And so I put that question to you tonight. Why do you tarry? Why do you wait any longer? You're not waiting because it's God's will for you to wait. The Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time, and now is the day of salvation. You're not waiting tonight because you're safe while you wait. Jesus said, He that believeth not is condemned already. You're not waiting tonight because you don't know enough to start. You don't have to know much to start. You have to know, number one, that you're a sinner. Number two, that Christ is a Savior. And number three, what to do to be saved. Will you admit tonight that you're a sinner? Will you admit that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Do you understand the Bible to teach that you must repent and be baptized in Christ's name for remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit? If you know that much, you're not waiting because you don't know enough. As I've already indicated, in New Testament days, people would hear the gospel and obey it one, obey it after hearing it one time. I mean just one time, and then they were ready to begin. You surely don't have to know much to start. You're not waiting tonight because you have a lot of time. James said, what is your life? It's a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Let me tell you something. You can't put this crowd together July the 4th. Somebody in this audience will be gone by July the 4th. It may be me. It could be you. You cannot put this group together July the 4th. Somebody here will be dead before then. Maybe two somebodies. And maybe more than that. You're not waiting because you have a lot of time. You're not waiting because it's going to be easier to change later on. You know it's never going to be easy to make a break with sin. Whenever you decide to do the Lord's will, it's going to be tough. It'll be hard, but it'll be easier tonight than at any time in your future. I started this presentation a while ago with Psalms 119, verse 60, where David said, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. I'm wondering if tonight you know you're lost, that you will make haste and delay no longer in keeping God's commandments. An old battle-scarred veteran of God stood before the Hebrew nation. He said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of our fathers that were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I ask you tonight to make a choice. One of our little children, when much smaller, said, Choose your choice. And that's right. Each one of us must choose or make his choice. You've probably heard it said so many times, it's almost trite, but I want to say again that if I had the power to walk one of these aisles for you, I'd do it. I know Jim Woodruff would do it. I know Terry Smith would do it. I know there's a lot of faculty members here who would do it. I know there are a lot of students here who would walk the aisle for you if they could. But it's your own individual choice. And I beg you, if you're lost, you come tonight. Confess the sweet name of Jesus. 
be buried with Him in baptism. Start the Christian life. Become a new creature in Jesus. Have the hope of eternal life. And if you've drifted away, you come on back home and start all over again. What I have said tonight is not falsehood. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fabrication. I have discussed with you tonight absolute facts. You need a Savior. Everything is in readiness. And if you'll just turn to Him tonight, you can be saved by God's grace through the death of Jesus Christ. Why don't you do it? Why don't you delay no longer? And as we sing that grand old hymn, Just As I Am, I'm hoping and praying you'll come tonight. Won't you please let us stand and sing and you come right now.